Are you ready to start the mission? Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. And today we're going to delve a little further into my book that's coming out on October 1st, Welcome to Belgrade. Since I haven't read the chapters between chapters 1 and 2, which I read last week, and the chapters I'm going to read today, chapters 10 and 12, I'm going to set up a little bit of what's happening. After the first two chapters, wherein my UN spy, my Fisher, was meeting with Arkin, the notorious paramilitary commander in the Balkans, and he is assassinated in front of her, she is detained by the International Criminal Tribunal in The Hague for some of the murders that have been committed in Yugoslavia. It's a trumped-up charge made by a character in the novel, which we're not quite introduced to yet. It won't be until a little later. But this character and Mai and Alexei have history. After Mai is cleared of the charges against her, she is given a new assignment by Nelson, the head of the directorate, namely to return to Yugoslavia and find out who's been committing these murders. Is it the government or is it the opposition to the government? And in the meantime, convince a reluctant candidate from the opposition party, one of the opposition parties, there were many, many of them in Yugoslavia, and I've touched on that, to run against Milosevic. Now, this is an opposition leader who does not have good relations with the West. In fact, he's as much an ardent nationalist as Milosevic became, but he doesn't have the power at his hands to do any ethnic cleansing or that sort of thing. So my questions, the choice that the U.S. government has made for the candidate they want to back, but she gets her orders and she returns to Yugoslavia. Now, for the last several months, she's been working in Yugoslavia. Alexei has been working in The Hague as a special assistant from the UN to the tribunal. But he returns to Washington, D.C. with Mai, and unbeknownst to her, Nelson reactivates him. Alexei has been semi-retired at this point, and he asks to be reactivated so he can go to Yugoslavia and keep an eye on her without her knowing it. So Nelson sends Mai to Yugoslavia on a specific mission, but doesn't tell her that Alexei's been reactivated. And Nelson reactivates Alexei to go to Yugoslavia to watch Mai to make sure she's not really murdering these Serbs. So that's the setup for the two chapters I'm going to read today, and I hope you find them interesting. We'll just get started. Chapter 10, Possibilities and Permutations. Belgrade, Serbia, April 
2000. Belgrade, Serbia, April 2000. Mai had wanted more flexibility in her lodging than the hotels most journalists used. Under one of her ubiquitous cover names, she rented a modest house on a small lot near the city center. The owner had overcome the narrowness of the lot by building the boxy brick and concrete house with three levels, and an open floor plan inside made it seem roomier than it was. The kitchen was surprisingly modern, with a top-of-the-line refrigerator and commercial stove, bright recess lighting, and a large selection of gourmet pots, pans, and utensils that, if they depended on her to wield them, would see little use. The two bathrooms were modern, too, with walk-in showers, separate water closets with bidets, and large bathtubs. Mai suspected the owner didn't want anyone to know how well-situated the house was on the inside, so no mafia boss would appropriate it. The shabbiness of the faded exterior paint and weed-choked lawn would dissuade anyone looking for a house to reflect his or her status, but they were a perfect fit for her cover as a freelance journalist. Besides, she knew quite well journalists' hotel rooms got searched by the police on a regular basis. Not much of an issue for a real journalist, but a big one for a spy pretending to be one. Her cover wasn't for show. She joined the media at the nightly demonstrations and bought her colleagues plenty of drinks in the hotel's bars. They discussed the murders, yes, but the big story was the daily and nightly protests on the streets of Belgrade. The large organized marches with their slogan-chanting crowds were the brainchildren of an opposition group composed mostly of university students, Otpor, the Serbian word for resistance. The Otpor-run protests didn't have the same spontaneity as the ones during the NATO bombings, when housewives, doctors, waitresses, and even some government workers took to the street wearing paper targets in defiance of NATO and Milosevic. Otpor had built on that success and enhanced it, given the number of arrests each day. However, because of the media presence, the reaction of Milosevic's police had been unusually understated. Another topic of discussion among the freelancers was the large number of them, especially in a regime notoriously uncooperative with the free press. Each had a story of lining the pocket of some Milosevic toady with the exorbitant licensing fees they'd paid. Further speculation addressed the likelihood the government was laying off the demonstrators in the hopes they'd be seen in a negative light, that it would seem like Milosevic was simply a beleaguered head of state trying to assure public safety. However, the reporters did what they always did, romanticized it. With the masses of humanity her cover, Mai often strayed from the police-designated press areas to take pictures and conduct interviews. Her smile and her good Serbian got people to open up. But as she snapped pictures of the protests, she also took pictures of government leaders going about their business in the background. How fortunate for her the demonstrators preferred government buildings as their backdrop. After joining the other reporters for drinks and turning down the occasional invitation for 
private drinks in someone's hotel room, she would return to the unassuming house, download her pictures, and compose her Euro-scene blog. She would nap before slipping from the house and flouting the curfew to shadow opposition leaders to and from their clandestine meetings. Undetected, Alexei had watched this for two weeks. Mai was almost infallible at spotting a tale. He drilled her in the practice over and over early in her training. As good as she was in eluding a tale, he was better at remaining undiscovered, even when tailing Mai. There had been, over the years, a few occasions when she'd spotted him, but usually when he wasn't that concerned about hiding from her. When he didn't want her or anyone else to see him, they didn't. She'd kept her movements unpredictable, at least to anyone who didn't know her as well as he. What did put him off was the randomness of the subjects she followed. One night, government officials, the next, opposition leaders, another night, her fellow journalists. That made it hard for him to pick up the pattern that might reveal her true mission here. He admired how well she'd blended with the press pool, another thing he'd taught her. He watched her exchange jokes, and there was some flirting. He'd read everything she'd written for Eurocene including the embedded encrypted reports which he broke into after some hours of trying. She did everything the way he'd taught her to, and that was why he couldn't yet determine if she had a legitimate mission here or was rogue. This night, after an hour, he abandoned following her until she was well away from the house. He doubled back and broke in bypassing her makeshift but impeccable security and ingenious telltales. He walked through the house, unhurried and patient, touching only things he knew were hers, clothes, cosmetics, books. The scent of her lavender shampoo and soap permeated her sheets and pillow. Nothing in the house suggested anything other than a place to stay for a freelance journalist until he climbed to the top level, more attic garret than a full story. He had to hunch to keep his head from smacking the door frame, and once inside, the ceiling was easily within his reach. Here, she'd set up an office and tuck some workout equipment in one corner. She'd block the short, narrow windows on this level with curtains made from a fabric that shielded the interior from most electronic eavesdropping. Alexei groped for a switch and turned on the overhead light. Mai had lined the walls with sections of foam board. Each had photographs taped to them and handwritten notes scrawled in the white space. He walked over to the closest and took it in. A picture of a man, his name neatly printed beneath the photo, as well as his position in the government and relationship to Milosevic. There was personal information about dress, routine, marital status, number of children, and a chronology of movements. There was a horizontal foam board, well, several of them taped together, where Mai had put an organizational chart with a picture of Milosevic at the top. 
Another phone board listed a number of men. No pictures, only brief bios and dates of their deaths. Mai had written, Official reports indicate accidents or suicides. She'd emphasized that with a question mark and an exclamation point. His lips lifted in a smile. Both he and Mai had taken to the computer age in espionage quite well, but she, like he, preferred some things to be analog. Her laptop was on a desk, and he put aside looking at the boards to hack into it. That took him a good half hour to get in and cover his tracks. He found the backup copies of her Eurocene blogs, and he went through her email. Most of the messages were between Mai and his granddaughter, a few from peacekeepers she'd befriended. He was pleased to see no suspicion of extramarital activity. He found her pictures, the surveillance photos of government officials and opposition leaders. There was even a video of a well-placed Socialist Party member getting a blowjob from a prostitute in the back seat of his official car, the driver with his eyes straight ahead. Ah, her blackmail file. Should it be needed. Some things about espionage never changed. Some of her photos of the demonstrations and the areas surrounding them were breathtaking, Pulitzer quality, but he was biased. Others were of average people, two Tito-era men, partisans from the row of medals on their overcoats, playing chess in a park, their hands resting on their canes as they studied the board, pipe smoke haloing them. A svelte, septuagenarian ballerina leading a class of tiny girls in identical turns and plies. A young couple leaning close to each other over a table at an outdoor cafe, the woman's bare foot up the man's pant leg. Children playing, a dog and a cat snarling at each other, women bartering over goods in an open-air market. Remarkable, professional photos, but that didn't surprise him. When Mai used a cover, she learned the occupation to expert standards. Done with the computer, he returned to the boards to study what she'd written on them. He spotted a cluster of murders from the year before, when she'd been in The Hague. She'd highlighted one, a journalist, Slavko Koruvia, who'd been an ardent critic of Milosevic after he'd been a longtime friend. Some of the murders stretched back to the mid-90s, but Mai had found the links among them. All had been shot, and no suspects had been taken or, in some cases, even identified. The three men she'd been accused of killing, she'd used a red marker to place an X over their faces. Next to them were more names and pictures with the label, Potential Targets. Among them was another famous name, Ivan Stambolich, Milosevic's mentor, the man who'd accidentally made him who he was, though Stambolich now was another harsh critic. The board with the picture of a man named Bosko Perosovic stopped his casual perusal. Perosovic was governor of Vovodina province and headquartered in Novi Sad some 60 miles away. In her neat block 
printing, Mai had written in all capitals, in red, and underlined, Next. Beside that was a date, two days from now. Alexei turned away from that board and closed his eyes, his heart sinking. He told himself this wasn't evidence Mai was identifying targets. Yet when he opened his eyes again, the evidence was all around him. He forced himself to finish his survey of the room, finding she'd done the same type of profiling for opposition leaders, with an added factor. She'd compared their movements to the dates of several of the murders. Was she exonerating them or setting up their alibis? Why would she kill these men? Revenge? Mai could be vengeful, he knew, as did a rogue FBI agent stretched out in Arlington Cemetery. Was she aiding Milosevic's opposition to destabilize the strongman's regime? Mai had always been more into saving souls than making kills, but he more than anyone knew how her cynicism had deepened in the past five years after she'd failed to stop a disillusioned soldier from the worst act of domestic terrorism the U.S. had ever seen. He went back to the board on Perosevich and jotted down the date, time, and location she'd written there. If Mai was going to be in Novi Sad in two days, so would he. No, he'd be there before her. He went to her bedroom, sat on the unmade bed, and surrounded by her scent, stared at the indentation her head had made on the pillow. All right, I'll just interrupt here for a little commercial. Welcome to Belgrade is ready for pre-order. It launches on October 1st, but you can pre-order your copy now for Kindle and it'll magically appear on October 1st. It's only $3.99. That's far less than a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Although, I'll pay whatever it takes for a cup of coffee from Starbucks, so that's not really a factor for me. You can find Welcome to Belgrade pre-order by going to Amazon doing a search on Welcome to Belgrade and, and probably my name, P.A. Duncan, and it'll get you there. Although, unlike some of my past works, I don't think this shares a title with any other book for sale on Amazon, which would be a refreshing change for me. I know that I should Google titles, even though titles are not copyrightable, because it just eliminates confusion over, you know, which book named this do you want. But Welcome to Belgrade should be easily found at Amazon.com. If not, you can go to my Amazon author page, which is Amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan, or it has its own special URL, the, the pre-order site, and that's https colon slash slash tinyurl.com slash WTB pre-order. The W is capitalized, the T is not, the B is capitalized, and the pre in 
I mean, the P in pre-order is capitalized. So tinyurl.com slash WTB pre-order. There's a couple of ways you can get it. And of course, if you like what you're hearing on the podcast, and I hope you are, I'm trying to do my very best with this. I'm not as good as some of my colleagues who are doing podcasts on spies and espionage, but I'm trying. I'm learning more each time I do it. So if you do like it, whatever platform that you're listening to it on, a like would be great. I've been noticing my listeners have been creeping up every week, so that's good to see. I'm hoping soon to break a hundred listeners. That would be really cool and actually far beyond my expectations, but it's always better to work toward a goal. All right, then, let's get back to Welcome to Belgrade. Chapter 11 Irish Lightning Club Dragul, Belgrade The smoke-filled air was almost too thick to breathe. The music's volume would leave her ears ringing, but my loved nothing more than a sleazy nightclub with raucous music and writhing bodies on the dance floor. This club brought back fond memories of an illicit summer in Amsterdam when she was 15. She'd gotten her fill of sex, drugs, and rock and roll before her guardian found her and dragged her home. Even all these years later, this club's combination of vices got her blood moving. The music's pounding bass centered somewhere below her navel, and her hips swayed to it. Club Dragul was a holdover from Belgrade's more prosperous era in the 90s, when the role models were nouveau riche gangsters. They populated the numerous clubs with their bottle-blonde girlfriends and heavily armed entourages. Drugs then had been cheap and plentiful, and Belgraders had the money to buy them. My Fisher hadn't made it to that Belgrade. In the early 90s, she'd done the Sarajevo slouch, using UN armored vehicles for cover against Serb snipers and Serb artillery on the ridges above the city. The mid-90s marked her futile effort to stop terrorism in the United States. She'd only read news reports and analyses about Belgrade's street raves and orgy of crime-related violence. Even so, death, with the exception of the frequent demises of youthful mafia bosses, had not been an hourly reality in Belgrade as it had in Sarajevo. Decimated by three wars, sanctions, and bad investment advice, not to mention government money lining the pockets of high-level public servants, the Serbian economy tanked, and the club scene had suffered as much from that as from the decreasing numbers of young rich punks, who'd managed to kill each other off in scenes reminiscent of Quentin Tarantino films. Club Dragul had survived because it wasn't dependent on the local economy. It was the franchise of a minor Russian mafia boss, and he offered unlimited booze and cheap narcotics for a pricey cover charge. In a Belgrade sucked dry by its own government, Club Dragul offered escape, 
a few hours of drug-numbed euphoria, where you could forget your once-vibrant city was becoming another Balkan ghetto. As she made her way around the bouncing, frenetic crowd on the dance floor, Mai let herself get drawn into dancing with a trio of young men. Club Dragul's owner emerged from his office and stood by the bar until she spotted him. He inclined his head toward his office. Mai nodded, and he went back inside. She disengaged from her dance partners and wended her way toward the office door, face flushed, pulse racing. Oleg Dimitrov was boss of one of several Russian mafia gangs operating in Belgrade. Mai had met him when he was a peacekeeper in I-4. There he'd made a small fortune on the black market, enough to impress the mafia back home, who'd offered him a decent inducement to leave the Russian army and run one of their operations in Serbia. Black marketeering wasn't part of Mai's mission in the Balkans, and in exchange for leaving his activities alone, Oleg's men often escorted her relief supplies to where they were needed without skimming from them. Not much taller than she, he was thick-chested and bald, dressed in expensive casual wear for a mafia don, black Versace suit with a black cotton t-shirt, bare feet in Italian loafers, a heavy Russian Orthodox crucifix on a thick gold chain circled his neck, and diamond-encrusted gold rings adorned several fingers. The Slavic Mafia Uniform He had flat gray eyes in a broad Siberian face. Maia, he greeted after she'd entered the office. Oleg Yurevich? He took her by the arms and kissed her Russian style, right cheek, left cheek, right cheek. He held her at arm's length and studied her black, all-leather outfit. If you wear leather underwear, Oleg said, I am in love no matter who married you. Sorry, no. Damn. He released her and sat behind his desk again, motioning her to a comfortable chair before it. What do you think of club? I'm a Rob Zombie fan, so I think it's wonderful. I'm hoping to have him do live concert. I will save you a ticket. Oleg lit a cigarette and narrowed his eyes at her. Where's your Ukrainian? At the Hague, I assume. Oleg puffed on his cigarette, directing the smoke away from her. All right, I will not go there. You wanted to see me. Mai took a money clip from her jacket pocket. What do you prefer these days, uh, Deutschmarks or dollars? The Yugoslavian dinar was worse than useless, and American or German currency was the preferred exchange medium for anything dubious or downright unlawful. Dollars first choice, Oleg said, not damned euros. What's your going rate for information? Depends on information. Give me hint. Mai peeled off and held up three $100 bills. Murders of current and former Yugoslavian government officials. Oleg nodded with vigor. Da, da, what media calls friends of Milosevic murder. Yes. As much as I would love to take your ill-gotten capitalist money, I have nothing to do with it. I'm aware. 
He raised an eyebrow. Which of my colleagues talks too much about me? I'm not giving information today, Mai said. I'm buying. She held the money closer to him. Oleg's hand was quick, striking and securing the money in his pocket in the blink of an eye. Not any of Russian mafia, he said. Maybe Serbian gangs. Maybe Milosevic race car driving son. Rumor is he runs several uh, Serbian businesses. Marco killing his father's potential enemies. Mai shook her head. He's a pampered, spoiled mama's boy and, frankly, not smart enough to pull this off. You are being too literal, Maia. How so? Oleg smoked some more in silence, and Mai slid three hundred more dollars across the desktop. The money disappeared as quickly as before. What is American word? Oleg mused, and for a moment Mai thought he was holding out for more money. Ah, yes, outsourcing. Whoever's doing these murders would not use Serbian mafia as primary contractors. Maybe some local low-level thugs now and then to throw police off track, make sure there is no discernible pattern. Oleg could stumble over outsourcing, but used discernible fluidly in a sentence. Mentally, Mai shook her head. Despite having been married to Alexei for all these years, Russian dissembling tried her patience. If not you, who might have a line on this? she asked. Oleg squinted at her again. Why do you need to know this? Why do you think? Oh, nasty business. Bad place to work alone. I'm pretty nasty myself when I want to be. She held up more money, but Oleg surprised her by waving it off. Do not take Milosevic on in his city, Maia, Oleg said. Too many ways to die. Federal police, military police, secret police, paramilitary thugs. With no one watching your back, too easy to get pushed into corner with no escape. With a nod, Mai indicated she appreciated the advice, useless as it was to her. Who can give me a line on this? she repeated. Oleg's fingers tapped on the table as he smoked and thought. Maybe Drago Kovac, the human trafficker. Da, da, he is sleazebag. All girls in this club are overage. I have fourteen-year-old daughter at home. Kovac takes them younger than that, hooks them on heroin, sells to highest bidder. I, I could get you into auction. I'd be too tempted to shoot someone and blow my cover. Why would a human trafficker know anything about political murders? His specialty is providing services for uh, visiting dignitaries, as well as certain highly placed people who wish to have sexual tastes uh, anonymous. Kovac would know of strangers in Belgrade for long haul, and his women would know what they talked about on the pillow. And yours wouldn't. If they did, I would tell you. Kovac might or might not be the one to know, but do not go see him alone. Oleg, you're being tiresome. I've been all over this country alone. 
Maya, you are thirty-five, thirty-six. Flatterer, I'm forty-two. But you look and act much younger. Kovach will see you as merchandise. Over his dead body. Oleg winced and crossed himself. It is not good to make this joke. You need your Ukrainian. My Ukrainian took himself out of the business. I'm a big girl now. I don't need him. Which, of course, wasn't true, but she couldn't admit that to herself, much less Alexei. Oleg stubbed out his cigarette and sighed. All right. But for Kovach, you will need the conversation starter. He opened a desk drawer, palmed something, and tossed it to Mai. She caught and studied it. A glass vial the size of a large pill bottle, filled with white powder. A conversation starter, she asked. Gift for Kovach. Good stuff. Best Colombian. Telling him I sent you only get you indoor. That will make him talk. My pocketed the vial. He has several brothels. Which one is he in tonight? Oleg wrote something on a slip of paper, folded it, and handed it to her. An address, but one he didn't want to say aloud. Russians were, at times, deliberate in their obfuscation. I will call him, recommend you as a customer of information, and Maya. Take guns, take knives, and try to look unattractive. I think I can manage that, Mai said. She stood up. Ah, uh, Maia, co cocaine is gift for Kovach, not gift for you. She brought out the money clip again. How much? One thousand. That's absurd. I have overhead. Police to bribe, middleman, markup. I am giving you at a discount. Of course you are. Mai had four hundred dollars remaining, but Oleg agreed to take the balance in Deutschmarks. Before she headed to Kovach's, however, she'd have to go back to the house and replenish her money clip. Oleg folded the bills, kissed them, and stowed them in a pocket. Always pleasure doing the business with you. By the way, if Kovach thinks you've sent him new merchandise, Club Dragul might experience a wee bit of Irish lightning. Oleg shrugged and smiled at her. Such are the problems of doing business in Belgrade. Oleg watched my Fisher leave Club Dragul his security cameras showing her exit. When she walked beyond the camera's coverage at the entrance, he picked up a phone and pressed redial. The, the, is Oleg. She will go to Kovac's next. He hung up. All right, there we have two chapters, kind of in the first third of Welcome to Belgrade. Gives a little bit of local flavor to how things were in Belgrade in the late 90s, early 2000s. This was really at the point where Milosevic's mismanagement of the Yugoslavian economy had reached its peak, plus a lot of Western sanctions because of 
the ethnic cleansing in Bosnia and Croatia and Sarajevo. I'm sorry, not Sarajevo. Uh, well, yeah, Sarajevo, bombing the heck and sniping the heck out of Sarajevo. But uh, Srebrenica, where, from where close to 10,000 Muslim men and boys disappeared, never to be seen again, except in mass graves. Next week, we'll move on to a couple more chapters closer to the middle of the book. This month, September, is going to be devoted to Welcome to Belgrade, which premieres on October 1st. In October, I'll be featuring the second book and reading from that, which is called Dangerous Truths, because it will come out on November 1st. And in November, I'll be talking about the third and final book in the trilogy called And Justice for All, because it comes out on December 1st. So I hope you're enjoying readings from Welcome to Belgrade. And the action's going to pick up. I always like to give you a little history in between the action. And I'll see you next week. In the meantime, remember, keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio, copyright 2020, all rights reserved.